Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. Years with Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry, he saw Jesus perform miracles. He saw Jesus uh, raise the dead. He was there when Jesus was transfigured. He was there when uh, to see the resurrected Jesus. Um, and so he, when he's writing this, he's a lot older. He's had time to reflect on these things for years and for them to seep into his soul and begin to change the way he's he, he's he, the way he is as a person. And so he begins his telling of the life of Jesus with this soaring prologue that we're about to read, striving for words that might help us to begin to wrap our minds around this amazing reality of who Jesus truly is. And so John's telling of the Christmas story doesn't begin with Jesus showing up as a baby. Uh, John begins with the identity of the baby. He is God in the flesh, God the only begotten, God the eternal second person of the Trinity, God on a mission to redeem his people. So, if you're willing and able in honor of God and his word, let me invite you to stand as we read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. It was not, he was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This ends the reading of God's word. He's given it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Let me pray for us. It's a time of the, of the year when we are inundated with uh, spiritual and cultural and uh, commercial imagery. And so we pray today that it would be the light of Christ that shines brightly in our hearts and our minds and our lives. And it would not just be for today, but that you would shine a light that is so 
potent and powerful into our lives, that you would drive out all the darkness, that we would see you in your grace, that we would see you in your truth, that we would see you in your wisdom and your power, that we would see your plan and be able to rest in it. Would you bless us and be with us? And Lord, would you bless me? I'm holding holy things, weighty things in weak hands. And so I pray that you would be pleased to cause your word to be powerful in the hearts of all who are present. Bless us and be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. So the coming of Jesus changes everything. I mean, what do you do when God, the God of the universe, steps into your world? How do you stop him from accomplishing everything that he wants to accomplish? And the answer is you don't. You don't stop him. He's unstoppable. He's going to displace you. He's going to do the work that he intends to do because of who he is. Now, I'm going to get John. Can you put that picture of Thor on the screen for us? This is Thor Julius Bjornsson. Uh, if you watch the Game of Thrones, which I rebuke you, I'm just kidding. Um, he is six foot nine. He was on the Game of Thrones. He played a character called the Mountain, and for good reason. He's six foot nine. He weighs 330 pounds. Now that's Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's right beside him in this picture. Uh, it's the governor. Um, in his prime, Arnold was six two and 260 pounds tops. So this guy, you can see, just dwarfs Arnold Schwarzenegger. Thor is the first person to have won the Arnold Strongman Classic, Europe's Strongest Man, and the World's Strongest Man all in the same calendar year. He is a behemoth. I think he has his own gravity, like things swimming around him, small things. Now, what would it be like to be around Thor? If he was your friend or your son-in-law or you know, something along those lines, so you could pick him up in your Prius, What's that going to be like for you? You go on an airplane trip, and he sits beside you, and he takes up not just your seat, but all seats on that row. You go camping with him. Say, hey, you want to go hiking? We can stay in a tent together. I have a two-person tent. Yeah, right. That's no longer a two-person tent. That's a, that's a Thor-sized tent. That's all you get with him. His size, weight, and the sheer volume of meat, the mass of this guy has an impact everywhere he goes, and it's just who he is, right? And it's the same with Jesus. Jesus has had an impact, an unstoppable impact because of who he is. Uh, There's a a short thing I'm going to read. It's attributed to James C. Heffley, and uh, it's called One Solitary Life. I think it was supposedly written back in the 1920s or so. Uh, But this is what what he wrote. He said, speaking of Jesus, here's a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, and that was his coat. 
When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Such was his human life. He rises from the dead. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I am within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that were ever built and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. So what do you do when God steps into the world in his glory? And you watch the world creak under the sheer weight of who he is. He moves you around. He loves you around. He fo- you find yourself displaced and you find your life rearranged. And you and the whole world are better for it. So the world is shaped by the sheer divine transcendent mass of Jesus' deity in a way that is utterly life-giving. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's dig in with the identity of Jesus to begin with. So John begins his telling of the Christmas story in uh, John 1.1, not with the birth of Jesus, but really with the birth of the world, what we call the creation account. So echoing Genesis 1, he says, in the beginning was the word, which echoes Genesis 1, which says, in the beginning, God. And he wants us to, in our minds, to hear that echo and to feel that sense of the pre-existence of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. So John begins his story not with the creation itself, but he who was before creation, who brought everything about. And this is the identity of Jesus with God as God. So real quick, a couple of pieces of this. Chapter 1, verse 1, he talks about prior to the world, uh, Jesus is not a part of creation. He stands apart from it and over it. He's not in the creation like you and me in the same way. He's apart from it and over it. He's not a created being. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, The Word was with God. So God the Son existed with the Father before there was anything else. He didn't begin to exist. He has always existed. Uh, He is the reason that everything else exists, and he is the distinct second person of the Trinity. Verse 10 If this is who Jesus is and he stepped into the world, why didn't people recognize him? Chapter 1, verse 10, he tells us that men love darkness rather than light. They love the idea of a world without God or with different gods, and they became distorted and guilty. And so when Jesus came and showed up, they refused to acknowledge and refused to see who he was. And so that brought guilt. So why did Jesus come? Chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, Jesus became a man to redeem people of faith, to give them the right to become children of God and to be brought into the joy, wonder, and life of that experience. We were created by him. We have been redeemed by him so that we can be reunited with him and through the power of the Spirit to become like him is what we see in this passage. So he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that doesn't mean that Jesus stopped being God and transitioned into just being a human being. It means that he was both fully God and fully man at the same time. Don't put in your mind a balloon where you kind of blow it up, you know, and you fill it with air. So Jesus was filled with God the way we might fill a balloon. No, he's everything that it means to be human and everything that it means to be God. Jesus is both of those things at the same time. And he still is and will always be. 
in uh, John 1, 14, John speaks of the glory as of the one and only, the unique Son of God. He's fully God, fully man. And so the question comes up sometimes, how do we know what God is really like? And this passage tells us in verse 18, no one has seen God, but God, the only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made him known. So if you wonder what God is really like, watch the way that Jesus deals with children. Watch the way that Jesus deals with the sick. Watch the way that Jesus deals with the poor. Watch the way that Jesus deals with the broken. And you will see the heart of the Father in his Son. And Paul says the same, Jesus said the same thing in John 14, 9. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the spitting image. So when you see Jesus, the Father is just like that. But he uses this word in 14. He talks about the glory. We have seen his glory. What is glory? Well, glory is in some ways the opposite of commonplace. And when we think about glory, something commonplace is ordinary, it's regular, it's average, it's tameable. Right? We can wrap our minds around it. It's something that's overly familiar. Glory is used for something that's not ordinary, whose value, beauty, and perfection far surpasses the commonplaces. It's recognized as superior to everything else, even to you and to me. So glory in the Bible actually refers almost exclusively to God and his qualities. For instance, the Bible speaks of the glory of God's grace. And when it talks about the glory of God's grace, it's a grace that's so unexpected, so generous, so undeserved, so different in kind, intensity, and perfection from everything else that the only word used to, to describe it is the glory of his grace. You know, we think about comparatives and superlatives, good, better, and best. Glory doesn't fit into the good category or the better category or the best category. It's a category all by itself. It's the ultimate superlative. There's nothing else that can even compare to it. And so when the angels appeared to the shepherds at Jesus' birth, they sang glory to God in the highest because they had seen and understood who the infant in the manger really was. And this is the second person of the Trinity now in a swaddled baby boy in a manger. And they said glory to God in the highest because what they're seeing and what we were seeing at that moment, whether we knew it or not, was the breaching of glory. Here's what I mean by that. Some of you may have actually been on a whale watching expedition, Nova Scotia or somewhere where you're, on the, you're out in these ships and people have their binoculars and they're trying to watch for a, a, blue, a blue whale or something to come out of the water. And they call it a breach when it comes out almost fully out of the water. Not just, you know, you see the hump coming over, but fully out of the water and then comes splashing down. If you've ever seen the videos or ever encountered that, you know that when that happens, you know, the water's just the way that water always is. And then all of a sudden, from the depths comes something that they weren't expecting at that moment. This big blue whale breaches the surface and comes right in front of them, bigger than they expected, more terrifying than they expected. And they're one, you know, if they were here, I'd be thinking, is that going to land on me? I have no idea. But I've only seen maybe one or two where it kind of like comes close to the people. So the big splash comes over everybody and they yell and they scream and they applaud. This is exactly what they wanted to see. You know what they're looking for? Glory. That's a picture. And when Jesus came into the world, he's, it's glory breaching into our world. Something fantastic, something unexpected. So John says in chapter 1, verse 14, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. 
Something amazing and wonderful has invaded our world, has breached the surface, and we, they got to see things that you and I haven't seen. They got to see the miracles that Jesus performed. They got to see the transfiguration. But the same glory, awe, delight, surprise, and intermingling fear of smallness is ours when we encounter Jesus through the pages of Scripture. And they came to realize, and it changed them, and it changes us the more we realize it, is when we encounter Jesus, we encounter someone uh, that is more solid than any mountain and more unyielding than any tide and more uncontrollable than any weather pattern and more powerful than any volcanic eruption and more ancient than the universe. And for them, they saw this person standing right in front of them, not somebody from the stars like an alien, but somebody from heaven come to earth, our creator taking on human flesh. And that's the story of Christmas. And John doesn't make any bones about it or pull any punches. He was there. He was there at the transfiguration when Jesus turned off the dimmer switch and the glory of the Lord was there in their presence. He was there when the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my son. He was there for the resurrection and he's writing from the perspective of one who saw and understood the true identity of Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh, but God nonetheless. And John tells us here, because of who he is, the darkness can't stop him. He dispels it. He pushes it aside. And then we see this in the mission of Jesus. John 1, verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So darkness represents all that is wrong in the world. And it's not an easy thing to wrap your mind around and say, this, it's one particular thing. It's everything that's wrong with the world. It, it's, it, it, in darkness in scripture is almost portrayed as having its own will and its own impact, its own agenda. And it grips the hearts of human beings. And the only thing that can drive it out is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And when you see Jesus stepping into the world, he's not just forgiving sins, but he's driving out all the darkness. When Jesus steps into a place, he has the power over life and death. When Jesus steps into a place, he has the power over heaven and hell. When Jesus steps into a place, he has the power over injury and full health. And this is what uh, we read from Leon Morris, uh, writing about Jesus. He said, where people needed help, he helped them. Where they were sick, he healed them. Where there were ignorant folk, he taught them. And where there were hungry people, he fed them. All the time, he was seeking the needy. He did not haunt the palaces of kings and governors. He was not found in the high places of the earth. All his life, he was among God's little people. Those who in one way or another felt their need. And wherever there was need, he was found doing lowly service. That is what Christ came to do, and that is glory. That one so high would stoop so low. He's the, great, he's the son of God, the great physician, the healer of the world. He healed the sick without medicine. He healed the crippled without surgery. He healed the blind without glasses. He healed the deaf without implants. He walked on water without technology. He changed water into wine without chemistry. He raised the dead without a defibrillator, and he just spoke. 
and the world and the winds and the illness and everything just obeyed him because he had that kind of power. He didn't just shine the light. Jesus says, I am the light. He's the light, and when he steps out, he drives away all the darkness. And he tells us that when he pushes back the darkness, it's being replaced with his grace and his truth. John 1.17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. His grace, his glory displayed among us in his person and mission, but we see the extent of, his, of it in his crucifixion. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus told his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, uh, William Barclay writing about this, he said, by glorified, the ancient Greeks used that word, by glorified, they meant that the subjective kingdoms of the earth would grovel before the conquering feet of the person who subdued them. Um, but by glorified, in this passage, Jesus meant uh, his crucifixion because death would grovel at his feet. Jesus defeated all of our enemies by his crucifixion. He took on flesh in order to be crucified. It was, by a, it was a human being who disobeyed and brought sin and guilt and death. So Jesus became a human being who obeyed and removed, and removed sin and death and guilt from us. He displaces our sin and pushes it away. So Jesus didn't just come to dispel the darkness, but to reconcile, to restore, to draw us back. Darkness in the Bible refers to God's absence from our life. Darkness is due to our sin and guilt. And he pushed back the darkness by taking all of that on himself. When Jesus died, Matthew, Mark, and Luke say, the world was shrouded with darkness for three hours to show that the world's creator was hanging on a cross and the world was in darkness as he took our sin. And this is what he means here by grace upon grace. 1, 12 to 13, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I think that's a great picture of grace, right? We have three kids, um, and when they were all born, they didn't do anything. Rebecca did all the work. I didn't do any of the work. I was just there um, keeping my mouth closed lest I said anything <laughs> while my wife was in pain. Um, but they didn't do anything. It was the work of somebody else that brought them to life in the world. And that's a great picture. It's not a blood, it's our, not our best efforts, it's not our good intentions. We don't do it. Jesus has done it for us. Jesus has accomplished our salvation. And he says here that all who believe in him are adopted. To believe he has accomplished the work, right? We're not trying to get from the naughty list to the nice list, we're rejecting those lists altogether and saying the only thing that will make me right with God, whether I'm on the naughty list or the nice list, is Jesus himself. I believe him. I trust him. I receive him. And he says anybody who believes in Jesus that way and says Jesus has accomplished this for me, they're brought into this new relationship with God. And it means that once you're on Jesus' list, Jesus doesn't say, you don't want to get on the naughty list, do you? 
You're on his list because you're a part of the family. You're adopted and you're brought into the family through faith in Jesus and never removed. I had a friend years ago who, told, who uh, they had adopted and uh, the mother had an heirloom piece that her mother had given to her. It had been passed down from generation to generation. And she loved that she had it set in a, in a particular place in her bedroom where she could see it and be reminded of her mom and this beautiful thing, keepsake that she had of her mother. And they adopted a little boy. And so as he's getting acclimated to the house and she's showing him things, she's taking him room to room and showing him, this is your bedroom and this is our bedroom and walking around. And she showed the heirloom piece to him and she put it back on a, the dresser. And then they continued to show him around the house. And uh, it was sometime later that he decided he wanted to go take a look at the heirloom piece. So he pulled it down off the dresser and took a look at it. And I guess when he was putting it back onto the dresser, it caught the edge of the dresser and it knocked it out of his hand and it fell to the ground and broke. So he immediately did what the rest of us would do. He scooped it up and hid it, hoping she would never notice. Well, she did notice because it was in a prominent place and it was something that reminded her of uh, her mother. And so she went to the room. Uh, she uh, asked him what had happened, and he went and found the broken relic. And I don't know if you've ever had something like, like a shock that come over you. It's just kind of involuntary. She had an involuntary gasp and tears kind of erupt because this was, this was from her mother, and it's one of the things that she'd given specially to her. So she, she was just in sorrow over the thing being broken. Well, this little boy thought, I can't, she doesn't love me. So he went running out of the room. So she got the, the relic and she put it onto the dresser and she went to find him. And she went and looked in his room and she didn't see him anywhere. And then she made, she made a connection. She said, he's under the bed. So she stooped down and she got under the bed with him. And she crawled under the bed with him. And she asked him the question, why did you run? Why did you hide? And he said, it's because I was afraid you wouldn't love me anymore and that you would send me away. And this was her response. She said, oh, honey, you didn't do anything to get into this family. And there's nothing you can do to get out of this family. We love you. And you're far more important than that old keepsake. I can lose that. I just want to have you. J.I. Packer says this. The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Because of the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. And in doing that, he has secured forever our place in God's kingdom. It's not what we do. It's what he's done. And that's the message of Christmas. The Son of God became a Son of Man so that we might become sons of God. Let me pray for us. This isn't just a story. We know that. This is the story. This is the story of the world. It doesn't matter if you're communist, it doesn't matter if you're atheist, it doesn't matter if you're Buddhist, it doesn't matter if you're Hindu, it doesn't matter if you're Muslim, it doesn't matter if you're black or white, it, from the north, from the south, old or young. This is our story. It's the story of the need we have of Jesus. 
And we pray that you would help us to hear this and to believe it and to rest in it, to receive it, just like this passage talks about. For those of us who have walked with you for 50 years, we ask, Lord, that you would make it fresh and beautiful in our sight, in our imagination once again. And for those who are wrestling with whether or not these things are even truth, the truth, we ask, Lord, that you would bring an assurance that they are, that you would change our hearts towards you so that we may love you and believe you fully and completely. Thank you for the gospel of God's grace. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for this passage and this time this morning. Would you bless us as we uh, head to the Lord's table now? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.